Uh, good morning, or good evening, church. <laughs> I'm so used to coming up here and saying good e- uh, morning that it just became second nature to me, but it's evening time right now. Uh, Kenny is not able to um, join us this evening. Um, Amy's sick right now, and he just, in case he has contacted something from her, he does not want to come and spread it to everybody else. Um, but this evening, we're going to be taking a brief break from our study of Isaiah. So if you've got a copy of God's Word, I would invite you guys to please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll be beginning in verse 13. As you guys are turning there, I just want to give you guys a brief glimpse into what is going on at the time of Peter's writing here. Uh, Peter is likely writing around 64 A.D., um, and if you're a student of history, you'll know that in 70 A.D., the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. Um, And in that time, also, the church suffered great persecution. And Peter is writing right beforehand. And an easy way to remember what's being talked about in both 1 Peter and 2 Peter is this. In 1 Peter, Peter is saying, be warned, suffering is coming, but your hope is in Christ. And then in 2 Peter, he is saying, persecution is here now but your hope is still in Christ. And really, this book of 1 Peter is ultimately a guidebook for the pilgrim in this life. Um, if you were to recall, you know, of that song, we are just pilgrims passing through, and this is Peter's whole argument here, what this book is saying, is that we are pilgrims. Um, just a brief survey of what 1 Peter is about, I, I noted that First, we have the pilgrim salvation found in chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, where it talks about our hope is in Christ. We have joy in Christ, as well as there is a history of a promise that is fulfilled in us because of our salvation, where we read that even the prophets looked into and and they were studying what type of salvation that we in this age of the church live in today. Of continuing on, we see what we're going to be studying over the night is the pilgrim's actions, which will be found in chapter 1, verses 13 through 25. Now, we won't be going through the entirety of what all the pilgrim's actions are to be, um, but we're going to study it um, briefly and see what all the pilgrims are called to act and to do. Uh, following the pilgrim's action, Peter then goes into a lengthy, detailed of the pilgrim's priestly calling. If you remember, what Peter is saying is that we are now priests in the household of God. Instead of just one tribe, as in the Old Testament with Levi, now the entirety of the people of God are called priests. And we have duties as priests that we are to fulfill, and this is found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Next, we see that Each individual pilgrim believer has responsibilities. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 4, verse 11. And then the last thing that Peter brings out is that collectively, the pilgrim, the church as a whole, has responsibilities as well. And we see that in chapter 4, verses 12 through 5, verse 11. Like I said, we are looking at the pilgrim's actions. Uh, During one of uh, Stonewall Jackson's campaigns during his military time in the military, his army found themselves by um, one side of a river 
when it needed to be on the other side of the river. So they, were, they came to this riverfront, they were stopped, and they needed to be on the other side. After telling his engineers, we need to get to that other side, he told the master of the wagon, we need to be on the other side. Well, the master of the wagon gathered every resource he could, and by daybreak, he came to Stonewall Jackson and said, the wagons are on the other side. And Stonewall Jackson replied, what, where are the engineers? How do they do this in such a fast time? And the master of the wagon said, oh, they're still in tents planning things out. We are not called to sit and think, but we are called to be active in our lives. And this is exactly what Peter is calling us to do today. That if we are a pilgrim in this life, we are called to action, not to sit by idly. And this evening, I want to bring out the three actions that pilgrims are to follow. So let us read, starting in chapter 1, verse 13 through 21. Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartiality, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let us pray. Our God, we come before you, and we come before you with great humility. Uh, There is no way that we can open up your word without thinking of the great grace that you have brought before us. Uh, Beginning all the way in Genesis, it is brought out that even though we were to die in the sin at the fall, you sowed mercy to us. Even at this moment, as we just read, your mercy is striking us in the face, and it is a humbling thing to behold how gracious you are to us when we do not deserve that grace. I ask that you'll be with us, allow us to see these truths that are in your word, and allow us to not sit idly by, but to be active in our pilgrimage in this life. It is in the name of Jesus, my King, my High Priest, and my Savior that I pray, amen. The first action that the pilgrim is to take is that he is to find rest in God. 
Uh, Notice with me, going back to verse 13 in chapter 1, Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, Peter begins this section with therefore, and and you've been here long enough that you know that when there is a therefore, we ask the question, why is it therefore? And before this, as I mentioned, Peter talks about the pilgrim's great salvation. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. And continuing on, he says, we have this great hope that is set on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of this great hope, we can have great joy in this life, even when persecution comes. And not only this, but our salvation was promised before the foundation of the world. Why? Because God in the Old Testament kept calling the the prophets and the writers to look forward to that time that Christ would come, that Christ would be brought, brought into humanity. He would live as a man and suffer as a man, and not just any man, he would suffer as a condemned, wicked man, even though he was righteous. Paul in, in Corinthians, he brings this out so beautifully. He says, He became sin who knew no sin, so that we who are in sin may be called righteous. Because of this, because of this great salvation that we have attained, because of the great mercy of God, we are called to action. Again, church, we are not called to sit idly by, but we are called to act upon our salvation. What does Peter say? Prepare your minds for action. In the King James, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. What what is Peter using? He's using this image because in Eastern culture, when people were to travel a long way, they had these long flowing garments. And when they would need to travel fast and a long way, they would pick it up and tie it around them. Why? So there would be no hindrance to their mobility. And Peter's bringing this out. He's saying, prepare your minds. Move everything out of the way so that you can be able to move. Don't be held back. And especially as we continue through this, don't be held back by your former life. That is what Peter's arguing here. Prepare your minds, and by preparing your minds, you are getting rid of everything in your past life, and you are clinging to Christ. You're clinging to the cross. Why? Because in the cross, our salvation was bought. And it was bought by the death of Jesus Christ. Now, how are we to prepare our minds? Now, when you look in the original languages, at least in the ESV, when it comes, therefore, preparing your minds for actions and... That and's not in the original languages. Now, the and here, when we translate it, it's used to help us out. But what Peter is really going at here, he's saying, prepare your minds. Now, here's how you do it. Be sober-minded. Now, this sobriety of the mind is not abstinence from alcohol, 
so much as it is to be abstained from every evil thing that controls our lives. We're to abstain from anything that takes control of our lives, that takes away from us believing in Christ, from us submitting to the Lordship of Christ. That is what we're to be sober-minded about. Again, it's not so much as to be sober-minded in that we abstain from any type of alcohol. No, it's more than that. We are to abstain from everything that takes your mind from Christ and puts it on us, that puts it on the way of the world. We are to set our hope on God, not ourselves, on God. And this is where we find that we are to rest fully in God. Set your hope on God. Set your hope on the grace of God. Don't be controlled by the world. Be controlled by Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope on that return of Christ. Why? Because as sure that as the return of Christ, we have surety in the salvation that Christ bought for us. Remember in Galatians chapter 5, when we see the fruit of the Spirit? Paul brings this out. Be self-controlled. You should be so controlled in your mind, in your spirit, and in your physical body that nothing takes away, takes you away from Christ. This is how we are to be self-controlled. We are to be aiming towards Christ. Not ourselves, but to Christ. And again, thinking as this, as Peter's probably writing this, one can wonder, is he thinking of how Israel, they were given the promise of Christ. They were given the promise of God by the law. And they kept going around and around, and they would repent. God would bring great security, great peace, and prosper them. Uh, they would decide, God, your way is not enough. They would fall God would condemn them. God would punish them. And in a cycle, repeated and repeated. Church, we're not to be found in that trap of sin where we keep going around and around. No, we are to set our hopes fully on God. We're to seek rest in Christ. Not seek rest in ourselves. Not seek rest in what the world is doing, but seek rest in Christ. A church, do you recall when Jesus is speaking, take up my yoke? Why? Because it is easy. We're to rest in Christ. We're to find our security in Christ. Not in ourselves. Not in what the world has to offer. But we're to seek security and hope in Jesus Christ alone. Continuing on this thought of what are the actions of the believer, Peter then brings us into that the second action that the pilgrim is to take is they are to be maturing in Christ. Following verse 13, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. As believers, 
when we are in this pilgrimage of life, in the faith of Christ, we're to be maturing. If you've been here on our Sunday mornings, you know we've been going through Hebrews. And we just passed that great passage where the author is saying, you guys ought to be teachers by now, but you guys are still babies in Christ. we got to go back to the fundamentals of the faith. That, that's something that should ring alarms. If, if we are looking at it and we still have to go to the fundamentals of faith, something is wrong. We are to be growing in Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. Now, some authors, when they look at this, they see that Peter, his audience is Gentiles. And I agree with them because he's saying, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The Jews, they had the law. The Jews, they had the word of God. And yet when Christ came, they did not claim him. They rejected him. The Gentiles, they didn't have the law. They didn't have the prophets and the prophecies saying, there is one who's coming out of Bethlehem. You know, there will be a child who's, who will be born, and he'll be called the Prince of Peace. He'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. They did not, we Gentiles did not have that. The Jewish people did. And yet here we are called by Peter, abandon your former ignorance. Again, we can go back to the first one. The first action we are to take, which is to be, is to set a rest on God. Why? Because we are to prepare our minds. We are to be sober-minded. We are to find our rest in God. And now we are to abandon, uh, completely abandon what we came out of. And we are to do this because we are aliens to this world. We are no longer citizens of the world, but we are citizens of heaven. Turn with me real fast to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And we'll look at what, what it means that we are no longer in the world, but we are in Christ. And as we look at this, Paul has just finished his great treaties of you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Not of yourselves, lest anyone suppose, but you're, you're saved by faith because of who God is, because of how gracious Christ is. And now, we are called, therefore, and this is linking back to chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We are saved by faith. And because of that, where we are at in Christ, we are to remember that at one time, you Gentiles, us, those of us who are not Jewish by lineage, but by Gentiles, in the flesh, they are called uncircumcised by that which is called circumcision. Again, bringing in about that Dividing line, Jews and Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. 
Before you were saved, you were without Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers to the covenant of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. That's where we were at. And in a, in a sense, that's where Israel is today. When those who do not believe in Christ, they are alienated from the promise of God. They are alienated, they are separated from the grace of God in that they are under the wrath of God. Remember that the only way to escape the wrath of God is to have faith in Christ. But then we get to this wonderful word in verse 13. But. But now. Yes, you were once separated from the great riches of Christ. But now. In Christ Jesus. You who were once far off. Gentiles. Have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are no longer aliens. We are no longer um, pilgrims or sojourners in Christ where we are not saved. But no, if we are in Christ, we are now citizens of heaven. We are now under the lordship of Christ. We, as believers, are now aliens to the world. We as believers are no longer citizens of the world. We're no longer under the kingdom of darkness. We're now placed in the kingdom of light. We are pilgrims. Going back to our book in 1 Peter, Peter brings us out in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Our place is no longer in the world. That's why when he gets down to verse 14, do not be conformed to your former passions because of your ignorance. No, be conformed to Christ. Look to Christ for your hope. We are to be maturing, not stagnant. And because we are pilgrims of the world and citizens of heaven, we should act like citizens of heaven, not like the world. We are citizens of heaven. We should act like what citizens of heaven are, are. What are the citizens of heaven? Our king, Christ where we get the name Christians, little Christ, that is how we are to act. That's how we are to function. We are to be imitating Christ. Uh, do you recall that when Peter is speaking, or Paul? He's saying, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Really, Paul wasn't necessarily saying, follow me, follow me. No, he's saying, follow Christ. If you're looking at me, really, you're going to be looking at Christ. What if that is said of us? Can that be said of us? That when people look at us, they proclaim they are a follower of Christ. When other believers look at us 
And they go to imitate us. Are they imitating us and our personalities? Or are they imitating the person of Christ? We're called to be holy, not in some of our conduct, but in all of it. Did you see that in verse 15? But as he, being God, called you is holy, you also be holy in all. Not in part of your conduct. Not when you feel like it. No, be holy in all of your conduct. In every aspect of life, be holy. Again, as we link this together, we can think about back to what I just stated in the first point, which is we are to set our hope in Christ, and that is when we are conform or when we are preparing our mind, when we are being sober minded, we are to be do this in our spirit, in our mind, physically. Every aspect of our life should be called holy. Now, holiness does not mean perfection, but it means we are righteous. Uh, do you remember what was considered of Job? He was called holy. He was called righteous. But the Bible also says that there is none good. There is none righteous. So how could Job be called righteous? How could David be called the friend of, or a man after God's own heart, even though he fell into great sin? How could Abraham be called a friend of God? The answer is because of the great mercy of Christ, the great mercy of God that affected their lives and they lived according to the purpose of God. And even when they sinned, they still went back and repented. They still went back and they conducted themselves that honored God. And church, we're not to live necessarily outside of the Bible where we just look at it as if it's a, a television show. And we just look at these characters and go, man, ain't this wonderful? Look how they're acting. No. We are to live exactly as this book calls us to live. And how does this book call us to live? To be holy. To be holy in all of your conduct. We are to follow Christ, not our former lives. And Peter brings out an example. Why are you to be holy? Why are you to abandon your former lust and be holy now? The answer is, is because our king is holy. The answer is, is because our God is holy. Our God is righteous. Therefore, you be righteous. Therefore, you be holy. And everything you do, you are to be righteous. And I would even add... You're to be righteous and you're to be holy even if it causes you harm. When Paul is speaking, he's saying, be obedient to the governments of the world. And do you know what, what time he is speaking there? What time in the world? He's speaking right before um, Emperor Nero starts his great persecution on the world. It could be that Paul is in prison. And he's still calling us to be obedient to the government. 
And if you notice, the Holy Spirit kept that in the canon. So that when great persecution came and the Christians are reading what Paul is saying, and remember, it's written by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is telling them to be obedient to the civil government, and the civil government is persecuting them, you know, just as Nero took Christians, killed them, martyred them, when they read in Timothy, conduct yourself righteous before the government. Especially when they act unwickedly. Why? Because you stand righteous before God. So again, I will say that we are to be act righteously, we are to act holy, even when it causes us harm. And lastly, this last action that we are going to look at tonight is that we are to live our life in complete reverential fear of God. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially or according to each one's deed, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourself in fear. He just called us to conduct ourselves in righteousness and holiness. Now he's calling us to conduct ourselves in fear. Peter is now looking at what we are to do while we are in this world. While we're here on earth, and he reminds them, live in reverential fear of God. Yes, we can call on God as our Father, but we must remember that God is not just only a Father. He is also a judge. And as we learned, learned on Sunday morning, that there will be rewards that we are given, but also taken away from us if we do not act according to the word of God. We must remember we are to conduct ourselves in reverential fear of God who judges because that is who he is as well. Yes, he's a loving father. and we, we see that great picture in the prodigal son. That the hero of the story is the father. The prodigal son left and went to a foreign country. Wasted his entire inheritance. Acted like the world. And when he came back to his father, his father embraced him. That is who God is. But we must not forget that God is also a judge. And he's not like a wicked judge that can be bribed. No, he is a holy and righteous judge who judges impartially. And if you call on him as father who judges you impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Live your life in reverential fear. Look to Christ and be in reverential fear of him. Now, Peter, after this, he goes on to tell us how to live in fear. Notice with me. This is why we're to live in reverential fear. Knowing that you are ransomed, a very strong and personal word there, that you were bought back with a great and hefty price from the futile ways that you inherited from your forefathers, being Adam, 
And you're ransomed not with things that can easily be stolen or taken away or even destroyed. Because as Peter brings out, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. This fear that we are looking at here is not one where we are so shaken and so terrified of who God is, but we're to sit there in complete humbleness. We're to look at him with awe. In fact, in some parts in the Bible, that is how that word is rendered, in awe. That this fear is in awe. Again, we are to do this because we know that we are redeemed. We are ransomed out of the world. We're slaves of the world, and Christ paid the debt to redeem us out of the world. And he did it as a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter is now going back to the Old Testament customs of looking at the sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed for the people's sin. And if you recall, they had to be without blemish, they had to be without spot. And that is who Christ is. Christ is one who was, did not have any sin in his life. But notice in verse 20, he was foreknown. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Another way of looking at this, Christ was known in eternity past. And what was he known for? Well, we must remember the context. Peter was just talking about the great sacrifice he gave. So we see here in verse 20 that the plan of God was always the cross of Christ. God did not create the world and Adam fell and God go, what in the world happened? How could this have happened? No, God created knowing full well that Adam and Eve would take of the fruit. And God still created that. Now, God did not create the sin that Adam fell into. No, he created the world knowing that Adam would choose his own way. That Adam would choose rebellion over the great peace and comfort that comes from God. He would choose a life of strife, a life of hardship. But the plan and purpose of God is to redeem man. The plan and the purpose of God is to bring glory to him by taking the filth of the world, which is us who were unsaved, and making us white as snow. To make us complete without blemish as he is. And it's not based on anything we have done. It's based solely on Christ and his work. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for who? For the sake of you. For the sake of me. For the sake of the world. The purpose and the plan of God was to send Christ to the cross. And it was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And when Christ came Peter brings us out that he was now made manifest. He's now revealed. John brings it out in his epistle. 
You know, Christ, before the foundation of the world, was not really known, but we have seen him, we have touched him, we have felt him, we have seen all these great things that he has done. Christ is the promised one. Christ was that promised seed of Eve. That the serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. This is why we are to live in reverential fear of God. This is why why we are in this pilgrimage of this life as believers. We are to look to Christ and live in reverential fear of Him because He is worthy of praise. He came and died for the sake of us when we were unworthy Verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the grave and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Again, church, our faith is not in ourselves. Our faith is not in a pastor, not in a program, not in a church. Our hope is not in one particular believer in time our hope is not on our finances our hope is not on our political parties our hope is in God and church may I remind you that just as believers in Peter's days are pilgrims we are also pilgrims and in this pilgrimage we are not to sit idly by but we are called to action We're called to prepare our minds. We're called to be sober-minded, not letting anything control us. We're called to live in, we're called to set our hope on God, not ourselves. We're called to be growing and maturing in Christ and do all our conduct in holiness. And we're called to live in reverential fear of God. And this is how we act as believers. So just a reminder, we're to seek rest in God, we're to become mature in Christ, and we're to live in reverential fear of God. Uh, there was a great uh, cellist, um, a, a musician player at one time, by the name of Pablo Cassell. And when he was 95 years old, he continued to practice the cello six hours a day. And towards the end of his life, when he was 95, an interviewer asked him, why are you continuing to practice six hours a day? And Pablo said, because I think I'm making progress. May through our actions, we can say, I think I'm making progress. And again, church, our us thinking we are making progress is not necessarily through our own action as much as it is the grace of God on our lives. May I challenge you today to take action in our pilgrimage. That when we look at our lives as we leave here and continue through the rest of our week, we take action by finding our soul rest in God alone. That we mature more in Christ, that we we 
become like Pablo and we think that we're making progress and that we have reverential fear of God in everything we do. And church, that is my challenge to you. Take action today. Let us pray.